Our passage today is a warning against apostasy and an encouragement to hold on to the confident hope we have that Jesus is coming again. Hebrews 5:11 through 6:12. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that is drunk of the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. So we are working through our series called Hold Fast, uh, which is us going through the book of Hebrews. And as I've said the most weeks, that um, there's a real question about who the church is and about our role and there also seems to be in society right now, and there seems to be a question of how we engage with the questions about who we are as well. And so it turns out that a lot of times what we can do, the temptation, I think, is to be short and to be quick and to kind of have a bumper sticker theology of it, to have something that is 140 characters or less, to be able to have these one-off quips. But I think what Hebrews does is it drives us deeper, not just to stay surface level to easy answers and um, easy solutions, but for us to do the hard work of our faith, to dig in deep about who Jesus is and who we are and how we now find ourselves in this new cultural milieu that we are living in, this new world that it seems that we have found ourselves in. There's a phrase in the South called losing my religion. And uh, it was popularized, perhaps you know, in the song by R.E.M., which was released in 91. Uh, it was uh, a song that had the mandolin as the lead, 
um, and the comp- record company didn't want to release a single with the mandolin. Uh, that was very not 1990s. Uh, however, they did, and it became one of their biggest uh, hits. The phrase, though, isn't actually about losing their religion, uh, as, as in their faith, Michael Stipe says, but it was about uh, losing their composure. You would say something like, these kids are so crazy today that I'm losing my religion. There is no place where I am more closely losing my religion with my children than at the dinner table. Like every night, I just about lose my religion. There is a lot of uh, rhetoric about punishments if they don't eat. There is a lot of, um, there is not, maybe not a lot. I'll downplay it a little bit for my own reputation. There is often some yelling, threats of bodily harm and things being taken care of, uh, taken away, and things of that nature. I am trying to get my kids to eat. And if you're a parent, which I think most of us in this room are, it can be a lot to move your kids from milk to solid food. They need it. They just don't know why they need it. And often they don't want it at all. But what our job is as parents is to use this gift of language and volume as well to get our kids to eat solid food, eat the food that we have set before them to be nourished by this meal. The author also wants his readers, his congregation, and us as well to understand the seriousness, the depth of the fullness of who Christ is, and to encourage, albeit rhetorically at times, to bring his beloved congregation to maturity. He said, this is kind of an advanced course on Christ, and I want you to fully understand it so that you reach maturity in him, so that you grow in your faith. And it begs the question, how do we become mature Christians? What does maturity in our faith look like? Well, our author gives us three things. He says it's by being nourished, it's by not nibbling around, and it's by imitating. By being nourished, not nibbling, and imitating. I tried for three N's, and I didn't even get three, two N's and an M, but we're pretty close, I feel like. So, nourished, nibbling, imitating. Being nourished is this first section of our passage, verses 5, 11 through 6, 3. It's through the middle of that, that second paragraph there that Hannah read for us. And he says, no longer should you be eating milk. Should you just be surviving on the elementary doctrines of Christ, which seems like he's making a pretty big statement. And he goes through and he names them. He says, these are the foundations of your faith. This is the foundation of your life, the initial repentance through the final judgment. We've gone over these things. This has happened over and over and over again, (laughs) like Michael's dripping lid. Turn it, I don't know, take the lid off. It's not helping, obviously. So, (laughs) sorry. So, You no longer are drinking milk. What you need is solid food to be able to move into maturity of the the faith that you're about to experience. You need more than just milk. 
So this solid food is what he's about to talk about. He's about to go in depth as we began to open up and look at of Jesus as our high priest. He's about to dig deep into that in the next section. And he says, our maturity hangs on this. What has been done for us and what is being done to us. And our maturity is something that is being nourished. He says, let us leave and go on. This is an act or excuse me, a passive voice that he uses here in verse one of chapter six. He says, this is a being taken forward, allowing yourself the personal surrender to God's active influence within you and within your community. For us to continue to move forward as a church, as the people of God, we need to let ourselves be taken forward instead of us striving ourselves towards the goal. I think we were talking earlier, Hannah and Stacy were talking about um, the movement from breastfeeding to solid food before service. Did I overhear that conversation right? Yeah. It's, it's a huge transition, as many of us know in here. Um, breast milk, colostrum, these are amazing things that God provides and creates in a mother's body to be able to nourish their children. There are loads of nutrients in it. It's quite, um, uh, it's, it's dumbfounding how um, God has provided to us. But eventually our kids grow up. And they need solid food to continue to grow, to be able to run hard, to play hard, to work hard, to think hard for their bones and their muscles, for their brains and their hearts, their eyes and their ears. They need things like protein and fiber. They need vegetables much against their own desires. They need calcium. They need vitamins for their bodies to continue to grow and be healthy. These are the nutrients that their kids need, and they come through solid Food. They come through sitting around a dinner table and getting yelled at, right, to eat their dinners. This is why we don't just completely raise them on breast milk, but we transition them to solid food. And in doing so, we sometimes, as parents, go insane. And moving them to solid food is not unloving, but it's actually one of the most loving things that we can do for them. This is how they are nourished. This is how they mature. Our Nourishment for a life of faith comes, the author says, in being skilled in the word of righteousness, in knowing Scripture, in knowing what Christ has done for us. In other words, we are to eat this book. We are to devour Scripture and and take it in so that it can nourish our lives, getting Jesus' life in us, not just those doctrines, those elementary things, the the um, the repentance and and faith and the final judgment and resurrection of the dead, but His life fully into ours. Eugene Peterson says Christians don't simply learn or study or use Scripture; we assimilate it. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration to the Father, feet washed in the company with the Son. We are to eat this book so that it metabolizes into our lives. 
this month, um, I kind of I said I need to renew my disciplines of prayer and being in the Word on a daily, regular basis. I fall behind uh, on a regular basis, so I know most of us do. It can be hard. You've got to set time aside for it. You've got to have the discipline to do it. But so far, we're like six, six days in. I've read the Psalms and prayed them every morning. I said I need to read the Gospel of John to get Jesus' life into me, to see who He is, how He worked, how He trusted in God's faithfulness to Him. Because I need to consume solid food instead of the empty calories that we're given through culture, instead of just the, the, the milk that we have, those sugary cereals of Instagram and the news, I, you know, this death scrolling that we do at times. Even the news, I was asking Stacey this week, like, where do you get your news? Like, I pull up Apple News or some news source, and it's like two articles that are like Trump this or whatever's going on in the politics. And then it's like how to lose weight and some other just kind of pop cultural thing of going on with a celebrity or something like that. I'm like, that doesn't tell me what's happening in the world. I need to know And to get back into the Psalms and the Gospels is to be reminded that though all the things we see here on earth are going on, God still sits enthroned in the heaven and He is reigning and ruling and He wants His life to get into us so that, verse 14 says, so that we can discern between good and evil. We can see those practices that please God We can see those things that are in our lives that are in rebellion to Him. And we can have the ability to distinguish them and then to delight in the life that He has us in the person of Jesus Christ. It takes practice. It takes discipline. It takes exercise to be able to do those just as we need when we are learning to eat solid food. But this is what it looks like to mature in our faith. The opposite of being nourished would be just to nibble, just to taste, just to sample what God has for us. That's that next section in verses, uh, chapter 6, verse 4 through 8, the second half of that paragraph there. Here's the warning that if we don't move to solid food, if we just try, uh, hang out, try to survive on breast milk and the sugary cereals of culture and here and there nibble, taste, sample the things of God, we'll never mature, but instead we'll die. The author says in the strongest language that he can, it is impossible to restore them who have tasted the things of God and yet turn and crucify Jesus again. This is a huge warning. Some commentators read this just as rhetoric. Again, this is just strong language to make a point. You can always be restored to faith. There is a pastoral statement that, you know, if you left the faith, then, um, you know, as a pastor in the congregation, it's really hard to convince people to come back to faith, to restore them. But nothing's impossible for God to do. Both of these things are incredibly true, by the way. Uh, And others take the full bore of the statement that, Those who walk away from faith will never be restored again. All these options raise a lot of questions. And Kenan and I, when we took this Hebrews course together at the beginning of the summer, this was like the passage everybody was waiting for. What is is Doug Moo going to do about this passage? What's this theologian going to say here? Can we lose our salvation? Does God's grace have limits? 
First, notice the language here in this section. It's about tasting. Two times uh, the author uses the word taste or tasted or shared. All that's the same kind of meal language, if you will. It's the notion of sampling. I'll take a little of this. I'll take a little of that. These are people who view the life of faith more as a menu from which they can pick and choose what they want. Oh, what are the issues du jour? Oh, that sounds good. I'll have that. Acceptance, but not ethics. Receiving God's grace, but not sharing it. Justice, but not mercy. Specks of dust, but not planks. Jesus is no waiter from whom you order just the things you want to try. He's a high priest who made full atonement for your sin with his life so that you can have the fullness of life in him. So that you can have repentance. So that you can have grace. You can have mercy and love. You can experience God's faithfulness in the midst of your suffering. You can see the fruit of the Spirit being cultivated in your life. You can enter into sacrifice through perseverance and hope, trusting in the promises of the inheritance that you will receive when you enter eternal life, that which is waiting for you. The Christian life is not going to Costco and just eating the samples. I don't know if you've ever done that, if you go to Costco or other warehouse stores during a mealtime, like over noon, and you're like, you know what, I'm going to skip a meal. I'm just going to eat the samples here. I've done it. That's not using Costco for what it's supposed to be for. Like, they have whole cuts of animal. They probably have a whole animals in the back. You can go and you can buy food, not just for yourself or your family, but for the whole neighborhood. Oftentimes when I go there to buy food for our events that we have, I'll buy like a block of cheese to set out and everything. We'll have 90 people over. We don't go through the whole block of cheese. It's too much. Costco is a shrine, an all-encompassing shrine to American consumerism. And it's amazing. All the things that they have there, and it's not just food. They have kayaks and socks and, you know, shoes and um, tires and vitamins. Yeah, tires, yeah. <laughs> Kenan works at Costco. Uh, tires. You can get everything there, right, in ridiculous proportions. Just picking and choosing from the life of faith is like going to Costco and just eating the samples. This is the contempt of the re-crucifying of Christ. It damages Christ's reputation in the world, and it damages ours as a church as well. We see how that's being borne out today. But it still begs the question, can one lose their salvation? This is a question of apostasy. This has been a century-long question in the church from the very beginning of the church. If people walk away from the faith, are they able to come back? Does God's grace extend to them? I think there's two answers to it. I think, yeah, you can lose your salvation. You can have the appearance of a Christian in all the ways, and yet for one reason or another, you can walk away from your faith in Jesus. You can walk away from the church, and you can follow a path that ultimately leads to your destruction. But also no. Ultimately, salvation in Scripture is nearly always spoken of 
as a future promise, as something you will attain when you inherit the promises of God. And therefore, none of us have yet attained salvation. There is nothing. You can't lose what you don't already have. Two parables quickly to illustrate this. Parable of the sower, Jesus tells in Matthew 13, of this guy who goes out, this farmer, and he throws seed along um, uh, out there to grow his crop, and some of it falls in this place or that place. Some of it grows up very quickly, but because of the, the situation and the circumstances, it looks like it's healthy and it's good, but either because of the scorching sun, because of crows coming and eating the seeds, or because of, of the thorns and thistles that it encounters, it doesn't last it doesn't grow into the crop. A lot of seed takes place, but doesn't come to full fruition in people's lives. He also tells a story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son who says he wants his father to die and runs away and sows his uh, seed, if you will, spends his money um, uh, prodigiously and in all the wrong ways. And when it runs out, he comes back to his father and his father restores him as a son once again. I think this is the hope. I think we all know people. We have friends and we have family. We have loved ones who have walked away from their faith in Jesus. People are deconstructing all over this country. But this is the hope that we have, is that the end of their story has yet to be written. No one is beyond the redemptive work of Christ in this life. It is our responsibility to pray for them, to be hospitable towards them, to be curious about them, even possibly more curious than they are about themselves, and to extend grace after grace after grace. The only way a person changes is by grace overflowing upon their lives, not by guilting them or shaming them or canceling them or arguing with them. It's extending the grace that has been poured out into our lives through the life of Jesus. So we're going to pause for a minute. We're going to pray for those people. You can speak those names out loud, or you can hold them silently uh, in your own head as well. But those whom you long to return to the Lord. I'm going to take a minute to do that now. Pray for Brad and Ann, Steve and Sarah, and Jeff and Lisa. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. This is not sampling, but it's eating the fullness of who Christ is and the life that he offers for us. And in doing so, we begin to imitate the lives of those around us. The author changes his tone right here 
in chapter six, verses nine through twelve. It's like it's almost it's as stark as he begins his passage. And those we speak in this way, and you're yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that lead to salvation, the love and the work that you have shown and how you've served the saints, that you would have the full assurance of hope. That is the feeling of complete certainty of what God is doing. He says, instead of being lazy and not sluggish, that's the same that word that he uses in the beginning of the passage when he calls them dull. He says, imitate those who demonstrate faith, and patience. It's this imitation that continues to bring us to our maturity. When we, uh, people who demonstrate faith, the assurance of things that are hoped for, people who demonstrate patience, there's a steadfast persistence that they have in clinging to the promises of God. Um, I would use the word stubborn or doggedness. This is people that I like to say have grit, that are going to bear it out, that are not going to let go of their kids not eating their dinner at the dinner table, right? Stacy and I are dogged and have grit. I go, you think you're stubborn, Joshua. You haven't met Mark Graffengator yet and his stubbornness. Yes, exactly. I don't know. His stubbornness may have increased, but um, we are dogged about they would imitate us eating at the dinner table for their health, for their nourishment, for their enjoyment of food. Has anybody watched The Bear on Hulu, this show? Maybe a little bit? Yeah, a few. It is a show about restaurant opening a restaurant and all the challenges that they face, both, both personally as well as restaurant-wise. Um, I love shows about restaurant openings. I've been watching them for decades, actually, at this point, because there's something about the stress, the creativity, the pressure that they have that I identify with. And I love seeing the passion that these chefs have for food and hospitality mixed with a little bit of ego that drives them to open a restaurant. It's like an against all odds kind of a thing. A friend in the neighborhood said, you know how you make a million dollars in the restaurant industry? Start with two million. Start with two million, exactly. You know, despite the permits, despite the inspections that don't come in a timely manner, in spite being over budget, in spite running out of time, they make it happen. Somehow they're able to open their doors just as the first guests are arriving. And then they keep at it night after night after night. These people are my heroes. Imitate these people. There are Christians who, despite all odds, the enemies surrounding him, the world stacked against them, continue to work at bringing God's kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven. It's those who have patient faithfulness, grit, doggedness, stubbornness, believing in God's promises, and never letting go of them despite the circumstances. Imitate these people. Hebrews 11 goes through a long list of these types of people. This is why we read Scripture to be in the the people of the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, Rahab, those who clung to the promises of God no matter what was going on around them. And then it goes into people who were killed in rather gruesome ways because of their faith. Who are these people 
in your life? Who are those who are in dogged pursuit of the promises of God despite all the odds? Who are the people who don't let go of God despite the wrestling? Who are those people who will wrestle with you? Call them. Get lunch with them. Grab a coffee with them. Maybe even a stiffer drink with them. Ask them, how'd you do it? How'd you cling to the promises when it looked like nothing else, when nothing was going to happen, that God was asleep and that he was away? How did you do it? Look to the men and women who have gone before you. Read biographies, read books. Look at those who laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel. But also look to Jesus. Look to him who clung to the promise of God as he hung on the cross. Is there another way, he prayed? But being none, he submitted himself to God's promise of resurrection life, not just for himself, but for us too. And God was faithful, raising him to new life on the third day. In Jesus, we see the author and perfecter of our faith who faced all of life, never let go of God, and who never lets go of you. Imitate Jesus so that you may be nourished by the fullness of his life and continue to mature in your faith. Let's pray. Father, uh, we pray that we may be a people who dig deep into who you are, that you would show yourself fully to us so that we may know of the promises of new life that we have in you. May you grant us your grace and mercy that we would be nourished no matter what we are facing in our lives, the challenges, the difficulties, the suffering, the persecution, Lord. May we look to how you, uh, how you in the person of Jesus Christ, faced the cross, knowing that this suffering may only last for a moment, but that your mercies are new every morning. Get your life in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, enliven us to see that which you are doing and working in the lives of us and in the lives of those around us. Help us to pray for, help us to extend hospitality and grace and love and mercy to all those to whom you have placed us in relationship with, Lord. We pray that you would be working in their, their hearts and in their minds to enliven faith in Jesus Christ. In your holy name we pray. Amen.